Let's read together from Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to read the first 12 verses. It'll bring us to the end of this first section called the Beatitudes. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We're coming to the end of this little section here, and we've come to the subject of of, uh, of persecution, of what it means to suffer for Jesus. Um, and he just mentions three things here, being reviled, which just means that people hate you, um, dislike you, dislike what you stand for, um, being persecuted, which I think has more to do with an intensive form of that when it takes action, when, uh, when suffering is intended and, and, and happens. And when people maybe speak against you, they lie about you, they says, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. I know that in just jumping into the subject, um, it's very hard, isn't it, for us in living in a time in history and in a place in history where it's not our natural assumption to think that being a Christian means that you'll suffer, to immediately identify with what he's saying here. And even more so, when you can switch on your news and you can see um, reports of what's happening around the world, just horrendous things. And uh, persecution is by no means a thing of the past. There are more Christians being killed and um, suffering martyrdom now than at any other point in, in history. These things have only intensified as Christianity has spread across the globe. But I want us to understand just how important and relevant this is. To, to suffer for your faith like we're seeing happening to Christians in the Middle East, is really at the very end, the extreme of what's normal. And I think that while Jesus totally intended these words to be um, taken in, in by those people, there's also a way that we need to understand that he was also just talking about the normal experience of being a Christian. So what it means for you to suffer for being a Christian. And that's what I want us to be thinking about today. While I would, you know, I wouldn't be completely surprised if there are people in this room even who, in, in wanting to live for Christ, will find themselves in parts of the world where you may well suffer more intensively. But this is something we have to realize is, is, is part of the normal experience of Christians and understand and apply to our own lives. Now, just to knock out one thing as well at the beginning. It is possible to apparently suffer for being a Christian and uh, for that really to not be what Jesus is talking about here. I think you can suffer for being a moron. I think you can suffer for just being, just being nasty as well. Um, 
I think this kind of stuff tends to be the stuff that grabs attention as well. So a few years ago, I don't know if any of you remember this, there was a, a case that kind of hit the news of a lady who was, um, who was so uh, wanting to put her foot down because the empl- her employers were saying, you can't wear any religious jewelry. And so she was wearing a cross around her neck. And, you know, I, I heard that and thought, you know, this is just a bit silly. It's nowhere in the Bible that we're told that we need to wear a cross around our necks. In fact, they would have considered it a little bit obscene if, if Christians had done so. Um, it, it, it's a silly thing to make a stand on, and it's not really suffering for righteousness' sake, which is what Jesus talks about here. You know, at, at another extreme, probably most of you in this room have probably seen the Louis Theroux documentary where he, he goes twice to visit that family who run this church in the United States where they love to placard all kinds of people, uh, whether it's soldiers returning from war or um, um, whether it's gay people and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind at all. Just the fact that they get shouted at, this isn't suffering for righteousness sake. That's not what Jesus had in mind at all. But he did have in mind the, the ordinary experience of, of rubbing people up the wrong way, of, of experiencing resistance to your faith. Because if you and I have taken what Jesus is saying seriously here in the Beatitudes, and these things begin to describe the kind of faith that you have. In other words, if you become, in, in Jesus' own language here, someone who um, is a righteousness, a righteous person, someone who embodies Christ-likeness, then your, your whole life is going to be a contradiction to the world that we live in. And in contradicting the world that we live in, we're going to find that people, from time to time, don't like what you stand for or even don't like you personally. And I would say there's a few reasons why being a Christian elicits that reaction. The first is just that this is it's a spiritual warfare. And what, what I mean by that is that it doesn't have to even be rational. I don't think there's necessarily anything rational about the fact that some people just dislike everything Christians stand for. I don't think it's something that they necessarily, it's necessarily logical or makes sense or um, any of those things. I think it's, it's just a deeply spiritual thing. I don't think people can necessarily even fully explain why they react to Christians this way. So it's a spiritual thing. A second reason is that the Bible tells us that when you become more Christ-like, you will undoubtedly begin to annoy people because of their consciences. So I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. You can be persecuted for righteousness' sake. In other words, when people look at your life and they see how Christ-like you are, part of what will cause a kind of dislike towards Christians is that it pricks people's consciences. This is what Peter talks about in one of his letters. He says, um, in 1 Peter 4, he says, the time that is past suffices for, for doing what, what the Gentiles do, the kind of things that he says you all used to do. He says living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Um, the world that Peter was writing into was really no different from 21st century London. So the, the sordidness of, of, of life in a city like this is exactly the kind of thing that the Christians had come out of um, when he was writing to them. And then he goes on, he says this, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. So he's saying, 
people get annoyed when you don't just go along with, with what everyone else is up to. And they begin to, to dislike you on account of it. As, is there anyone who hasn't experienced that at some point? If you haven't, then it's probably because you are going along with everything that's, that's happening in the world. But if you stop, if you, if, you, if, you, if you put the brakes on and say, no, this is who I am, I belong to Jesus, people's consciences become inflamed. So it's spiritual war, people's consciences are offended. And another reason is just this. The gospel, the, the stuff we believe, the truth we believe, what we're called to speak, is just downright offensive. Just lay it out in black and white what it is we believe about the condition of humanity, that, that God hates our sin, that God is our enemy, and that you, there's nothing you can do about it except believe in Jesus, and that that's the only option you have, or else you're going to go to hell. Now, when I put it in stark terms like that, it makes all of us feel a little bit uncomfortable to some extent because the gospel always has this offensive element. It's got a sharp, even a serrated edge to it. And so I would be surprised if, if you're living a consistently Christian life and everyone around you likes you. Even if you're the smiliest coyote-like person in the world, there's, 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 there's going to be people who dislike you because of what you stand for. If you're consistent. In, in standing for it, right? And so this is why Jesus said time and time again, there, there are a number of verses where he just says, they will hate you. He says it in Matthew 10, he says it in, uh, in Matthew 24, I think it is. In John 15, let me just read you this. This is really morbid, and, um, but you have to know it. To live a consistent Christian life, you've got to hear what Jesus has to say to us. It's very dangerous, just reading a blog this week about a famous church in the States where the pastor um, only tells people about the good stuff in, in Christian faith. And the trouble is, if you don't prepare people for the realities, their faith isn't really going to last very long. But Jesus was really, really hard-hitting when he talked about what it means to be a Christian. He said things like this. He says, if you were of the world, in other words, if you were exactly like everyone else around you, the world would love you as its own. The world loves people that reflect themselves. We all tend to find friends who are just like us. And the way to be accepted in the world is to be just like everyone around you. That's what he says. But he says, because you're not of the world, because there's something a bit weird about you, um, you're not of the world. He, he goes on and says, because I chose you out of it. So I called you out, made you my own. He says, therefore, the world hates you. And remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, Jesus says, they'll also persecute you. So this is just cold, hard truth that a consistent Christian is going to bump into this at some point, that people are going to dislike you. And so I don't think our problem is that we're likely to, um, to be overly zealous and annoy people um, like making lawsuits about wearing crosses or placarding um, gay weddings or whatever. It's not the, I don't think that's our danger. I think our danger, generally speaking, as young um, people in, in central London, in the 21st century, who are connected um, with society, is that we are more likely to conform. And we're more likely to do it because of fear. I don't know if that's true of you. I think three fears in particular 
come together to stop us as Christians from, from suffering for Jesus. The first is the fear of man. I think the desire to be liked and to be approved is hardwired into our system. I have never met anyone who doesn't want to be liked by at least some other person. Even if they can turn their back on most of the world, they, everyone wants someone to like them, right? Even the very odd cliques in school had each other, right? <laughs> we are hardwired this way. And in fact, this desire for approval is big business in the world. And I'm not just talking about the shallow... Um, sort of attention-seeking celebrity culture we live in, it runs all the way through in business, in your day-to-day work life, right into the very highbrow academics. You know, they call them peer-reviewed journals because they're basically desperate for each other's approval. That's what it means to be an academic. You need the approval of other academics. We are hardwired to need and to seek the approval of men. And so it takes courage to, to be in a place where you aren't liked. Fear of man. Second, fear of rejection. Let me just add, by the way, on that last point, fear of man. I think this is intensified and exacerbated by the fact that we live in this global village. In the olden days, if I can speak this way, if you lived in a village, there will always be the village eccentrics. People who are a little bit different. And in one village, maybe this is still true in Wales, Brandon, I don't know. There'll be one one guy who's so odd, he's... um, you know, he's known as the eccentric in the village. But in fact, you take that whole village as a whole, and the whole village is eccentric compared to the next one. But now we live in this sort of globalized society where we all watch the same pro- programs, and we all, are, we all have the same idea of what's normal. And increasingly, eccentricities are, are labeled as being odd and not acceptable. And I think within that context where there's just this, this, this global idea of what's, what's a normal person... I think it's even harder to be different. That fear of man thing is even intensified in this day and age. A second thing is fear of rejection. We are not only hardwired to want people to like us, we're hardwired to want to belong. God made us for community, didn't he? And the the, the hard truth of it is that when you're faithful as a Christian, there are going to be groups who do not accept you. And that's just a reality. No one wants to be a social outcast. And a third fear is this, the fear of loss. What do I mean? Well, we not only desire approval, we not only desire to belong, we also want to go advance in life. We want success. We want to um, make a mark. We want to live a life that's significant. And uh, I think that's true of most people in some way, shape, or form. And the reality is that when you nail your colors to the mast uncompromisingly, you risk being overlooked or worse, being actively um, pushed out and held back and held down. Now, I don't want us to go around with a victim mentality. Like, that's not what I'm trying to encourage at all. But I, I just recall a few years ago, one of the pastors in, in London who leads one of the large London churches, his wife was um, wanting to run... Um, to become a member of parliament um, for the Conservative Party. And she had a very, very deep passion for certain issues, social issues, in particular abortion, and wanted to um, influence politics in some way over the years to come. But as the election was, was coming close, what unfolded was these, these journalists began digging around in her past. And of course, because she's a pastor's wife, they thought there's got to be something juicy here. 
And they began to uncover that she'd been involved in helping people who, who, in becoming Christians, wanted to leave a homosexual lifestyle behind them. And, um, and, and really, that was their desire, at least apparently so. And it turned out that one or two of these people had never had changed their mind in following years, had written or been in touch with journalists, and a storm erupted around this woman. How dare you try and change a person? How dare you? And eventually, of course, she didn't win the seat, and uh, she, she hasn't been able to run to become a member of parliament since. I don't know all the details of her story, but it's a very real way in which her convictions as a Christian had led to her losing out in, in a very real way. Now, I think God's sovereign over her life. He'll do what he wants with her and praise God for that. But the fear of rejection, the fear of man and the fear of loss come together in our lives to cause us to want to conform, don't they? Is there anyone here who hasn't experienced that, that urge, that desire? None of us, right? We all know what that feels like. And so coming back to what Jesus says here in, this, in these Beatitudes, is there anything more important for us to, to grasp than the reasons why Jesus would urge us to stand up for him? He gives us three. What are they? The first is that if you suffer for him, he says it proves that your faith is real. It says it in verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It proves your faith is real. How so? Well, I don't know if you noticed this, but the very first beatitude, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It has exactly the same promise associated with it. What does he mean? Well, when we began, we were saying, listen, this is the way into the Christian life. To become a Christian means that first and foremost, you have to become poor in spirit. And he says those who who are humbled, who recognize that they're spiritually bankrupt, that they can bring nothing to God, they're the people with open hands who receive from God everything. They receive the grace of God. They receive the kingdom of heaven. They are Christians. That's the way in. And then in this final beatitude, he brings it right back around and says, look, and this is the mark of Christians. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They suffer for being Faithful to me. And so the way I think of it is like this. You know, in a necklace you have two matching clasps which, which are at the ends of, of, of the necklace. And if they, they join perfectly. And that's how these Beatitudes can be understood. The whole picture is describing the Christian. But the first and the last tell us the way in and the true mark of a Christian. A real Christian is somebody who is willing to suffer for the name of Christ. Why then is suffering such an important mark? Why is it the mark, the hallmark of authenticity for somebody who's truly saved? Well, I think it's for this reason that it reveals whether you've really seen it. Believe it or not, there are a lot of people who would gladly go to church and identify as Christians because of the attractive elements of our faith. And I think about a few. One is a desire for community. That there's not many places in the world where you can get the same kind of community you get in church life. And so people are drawn to that. Another thing that people want to be in church for is a sense of transcendence. 
I think this is why people go in for the very high church with the smells and the incense and the, the languages you don't understand. Because in that kind of spooky, mystical atmosphere, people think, um, I'm connecting with something bigger. It's like a meditative experience. Community, maybe transcendence, or even just the feeling of doing religion. And maybe that goes with a kind of nostalgia, maybe even a hipsterish nostalgia, though I don't, you don't really see much of that. But I think some people want to connect with ancient stuff. And so they find themselves in church because it just feels right to do what people have always done and to do a bit of religion in your life. All these things are attractive, aren't they? But none of these things makes you a Christian. So if you're somebody who goes to church for the community or the sense of transcendence or the feeling of, of, of the, the good feeling of doing religion, how can you know that your faith is real? And I think the answer is a willingness to suffer for the name of Jesus. In other words, if all that feels good about your faith is taken away from you, are you still a Christian? If the misery that you experience outweighs all those benefits, are you still happy to call yourself a Christian? The ultimate test, of course, as we're seeing, is that when people are willing to die for, for the claim. But I think there's something about that willingness to die in a daily or momentary basis. Willingness to say, I, I will suffer for you, Jesus, because I really believe this. In Hebrews 11, this is exactly what um, he picks up on towards the end of that chapter. He says, he's been talking about all the heroes of faith. And he says in verse 36, he says, Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats. In other words, they they were too poor to afford normal clothes. And they were destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. He's forcing us to ask this question. What possible reason could there be for choosing that kind of lifestyle? Why would you choose a life that is more miserable on the surface of it? The only answer is that you, you must have seen something. You must have seen something that now controls you. In verse 16, he says, As it is, they desire a better country, the heavenly one, and therefore God's not ashamed to be called their God. He's saying they have seen something. They've seen that their best life is not now. It's in eternity with God. That's why they're willing to suffer. That's why they're willing to walk around in animal skins and in deserts and, and be rejected by people. He puts it slightly differently, talking about Moses. He says, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. In other words, to, to have his royal privileges. And instead, he says, choosing to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting ple- pleasures of sin... Why? Because he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So he said, I'll gladly live a life of suffering, because I think all of this that I have in Christ outweighs everything that I could have in this life. The approval, the acceptance, the getting ahead, all that stuff, none of it's worth it in the end. 
This is why it's such a hallmark of authentic faith that anybody who is truly a Christian will, when it comes to it, suffer for that. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They are truly Christians. I think that's why it says here, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He's saying God isn't going to disown you because he, the mark of suffering on your life is the mark of authenticity. Jesus puts it negatively in the opposite way in Mark 8 when he says, um, he says it slightly differently. He says, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. He's saying if anyone's unwilling when there's a cost to still claim that you, you believe in Jesus, then he says, you're not a Christian. That's essentially how it goes. Sounds harsh, doesn't it? But I think we've got to re- wrestle with the truthfulness of this. That's the first thing, that it proves that your faith is real. Secondly, Jesus says you'll receive a reward. Here in Matthew 5, he says, Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Now, I think that when we talk about rewards, um, we're entering territory that makes Christians feel a little bit uncomfortable. And we're going to hit it a number of times in the Sermon on the Mount as we go through Jesus' teaching here, because he talked about it quite a bit. I think there are a few reasons why Christians are so uncomfortable the idea of rewards. The first is that it can seem almost less noble that you live for rewards. So they say, surely, surely a Christian should be someone who does what's right for its own intrinsic value. And, and not because there's some kind of reward. So they think, you could think of it this way, that you know, if a doctor, if you ever ask a doctor, why did you become a doctor? And they say to you, well, for the money. You immediately think, well, what kind of a doctor are you? You know, do you care about your patients? Or a soldier? There's something noble about soldiers who go to war for, um, for country and for flag and for the sense of, of um, wanting to defend their, 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 their people. But if a soldier is a soldier because he's a mercenary and he does it purely for reward, purely for money, something, there's something very ignoble about that, isn't there? And it it seems to me that a lot of Christians hear the language about rewards and they think, surely this is not the best reason or motive to live for Jesus. And I would just want to answer that. Listen, let's not try and be more godly than Jesus, shall we? Let's just get this in perspective here. Jesus, it says in Hebrews 12 that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. In other words, If Jesus didn't have the prospect of a reward, he wouldn't have died on the cross. Why did he do it? For the reward that the Father had promised him, which is, by the way, you. (laughs) Were you worth it? (laughs) Was I worth it? It's a good question, isn't it? Let's not try and be more godly than Jesus when we think about the subject of rewards. Jesus unashamedly says, do this and the Father will reward you. Stand up for me, the Father will take notice. That's one thing that people are uncomfortable with. Another is that it seems like a denial of grace. So we, we, we know the gospel is 
that God's unmerited favor towards us, that we couldn't have earned his favor, and yet he pours it on us lavishly, and we celebrate that, it is the best news. And they say, well, surely as soon as we introduce this idea of rewards, we're talking here about something that you can earn. And if we're talking about something that you can earn, then that cannot be grace, can it? But listen, let's not confuse grace with God not being interested in the way you live. He emphatically is. And the way you live on earth and how you live for Christ will make a difference in eternity. If any of you are are lukewarm for Jesus and you know it, take note. God wants you to be aware of this because he wants you to change now. One author put it like this. He says about these rewards that they're not as of merit but of grace for there's no proportion between them. What does he mean? He means that if something is just a cold transactional arrangement, it'd be like if you do this much suffering, you'll get this many rewards. So if you get slapped on the cheek, maybe you'll get a nice house in heaven. If you get slapped twice, you get a mansion. And you know, if, if somebody calls you an idiot because you believe in Jesus, you'll get a Porsche or something in eternity. So that would be a kind of transactional view. Like, This amount of suffering equals that amount of rewards. And that's not how Jesus or the Bible would talk about this. He says, yeah, there is a connection between your suffering and the rewards, but the rewards are going to far exceed anything you've ever experienced in this life by way of suffering. Because they're of grace. It's God lavishly pouring them into our lives. That's another thing. Another reason why people feel a little bit... um, hesitant to talk about rewards is because the language of rewards, it just feels so, so ethereal, so um, sort of out there and a little bit hard to imagine what we're talking about. Like, it's a little bit difficult to get excited about whether you're going to have a wooden or a gold-plated harp, isn't it, in, in heaven? When people think about what rewards are, it's hard to get excited about whether your cloud is going to go faster than the next guy's and this kind of thing. So I think because people have such a truncated, weird perspective of what heaven is and what it means to be, belong to Christ in eternity, it's very hard to get a handle on what the rewards are that he's promising. But when you read what Jesus said about rewards, he talked about Guys ruling cities. I don't know how literal he's being, but he wants us to grasp the idea that there's a leadership and there's authority and there's, there's, he who's faithful and little will get a lot. And it, that it in some way equates very similarly to the things that we desire in this life. He's talking about promotions. He talks about having treasures. He says, don't hold on to your treasures here because you'll get, if you give them, and you'll store up treasures in, in heaven. He's saying, the desire to be wealthy is, is a redeemable desire, providing it's, it's desired in the right way and for the right reasons and for God's glory. And he says, God can give you more wealth than you can imagine. So let's not make this a little bit too spiritual and too weird. I think the new creation where we're going to live with Christ for eternity is going to be far more like this world than we could ever have, have ever really understood. And that the rewards are going to look ahead a heck of a lot, like the best stuff that you can enjoy in this life, except enhanced and made more beautiful and more wonderful. So when Jesus says here, you're blessed, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. He's making promises here, friends, that ought to fuel our obedience 
and urge us to, to live for him in a more faithful, consistent way. The apostles took this stuff seriously. And Paul says, especially this command to rejoice, he tells people in Romans 5, he says, we rejoice in our sufferings. He wasn't being ironic. He, he, I think he genuinely felt happy about how much he'd suffered for Jesus. You occasionally meet people like that. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, which produces character and hope, and that doesn't put us to shame, he says. He's actually felt happy about how much he'd suffered for Jesus. Peter also says this, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He's saying, in effect, you know, when, when, when being a Christian involves a cost, don't suddenly go, ooh, no one told me about this, and, and, and let that surprise cause you to back away and sort of retreat, and then, or maybe even throw your hands up in shock and be like, God, you're not fair. He says, don't be surprised. This is normal. This is part of the normal experience of what it means to be a Christian. And he goes on, he says, but rejoice. These guys heard the teachings of Jesus to rejoice and be glad, and they took it seriously, and they took it literally. Rejoice doesn't mean anything other than to be happy about. He actually wants us to be happy the more we suffer for him. Which might sound a little bit weird, but it's not, because your faith is in Christ. If you are miserable on account of any suffering you've experienced for Jesus, you know, that's a denial of, of, what we, of the gospel we believe, isn't it? If suffering for Jesus, you know, whether it's, it's people disliking you, speaking nasty things about you, um, rejecting you, whatever it is, if that makes you miserable, then what you're telling everyone is that that stuff is worth more to you than what, what Christ offers. I think that's why it's so important to Jesus that we take it seriously, that we're called to rejoice that our reward is great in heaven. It's a test, really, of whether you believe in heaven, isn't it? If you're willing to suffer. Brings me to my last point. Not only does it prove that our faith is real, not only does he promise rewards for those who suffer for Jesus. Lastly, he says, you'll get your name in the Hall of Fame. Look how he puts it. He says, For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I think he's saying something like this, that the greatest men of God are those who suffered the most. And it seems to me that both history and the Bible show us that the more faithful you are to Jesus, the more you suffer. And that there's a kind of inescapable rule and logic to that. Some of the guys who are most well known to us, even in the West, in what is a relatively easy environment to be a Christian, some of them have suffered far more than they will ever tell you about for the faith. There's something about faithfulness to Jesus and suffering that they go hand in hand. It's true in the Bible. Isn't the Bible written for our encouragement that as we look through it and see the stories of men of God, we, we see people who were uncompromising, and the more uncompromising they were, the more they suffered. 
Amos is rejected. Jeremiah, according to tradition, tradition is stoned to death. Isaiah is sawn in two. I think that's who the book of Hebrews is alluding to. He says someone was sawn in two. So someone, this wasn't a magic trick where they put him back together at the end. He was literally sawn in two. This is Braveheart stuff. You can think about the accounts of, in the New Testament of Jesus himself. Brutally killed. You think about Paul. He goes on, doesn't he, at great length about the list of sufferings for Jesus. Why? Because he was totally uncompromising. The more faithful he was to Christ, the more he suffered as a result. And if he'd weakened his testimony, his lifestyle, if he'd taken his foot off the gas, I think he could have lived an easy life, even a successful life in the world's eyes. He could have been an elite scholar, acceptable and loved and praised and adored by the Jewish world. But the more he preached Jesus, the more he was hated as a result. It's true in history also. Our land is littered with the sights of men who were martyred. You can visit places all around this country, in Oxford, in London, Winchester, people who were burned at the stake for the faith, who purchased for us, I think this is what Paul means when he says that he's fulfilling Christ's sufferings. He's doing the suffering which Jesus isn't going to do for us, but which we do to make the gospel known in the world. And these guys have done it for us, that we might know the gospel. Think about guys like Thomas Cranmer. He was... Is burned alive. Why? Because he wanted his generation and successive generations in Britain to know the gospel. Something as simple as that. And friends, of course, it's highly unlikely any of us are ever going to come close to anything like that. But are you willing, even just to be ridiculed a little bit, to be mocked? Are you willing to to be maybe disliked or to offend someone, which is the great sin of the modern age, isn't it? Cause offense and they'll put you in prison. I don't know when we got so soft. But it seems to me that what Jesus is saying here is that he gives honor and greater honor still to those who are faithful to him. You know, in that passage I read to you from Hebrews 11, it says... Verse 38, when it talks about all their suffering, it says, of whom the world was not worthy. I think if we're to understand that correctly, what he's saying here is that God's assessment of their life was that those who suffered for him the greatest were in his eyes the greatest people. They were, the world was not even worthy of them. And the New Testament talks about star differing from star in glory. I think that God is wanting to bestow on his people greater honor when we live for him more faithfully and live through the consequences and acknowledge and accept the cost. Now I began just by mentioning the various fears which cause us to shut down. The fear of man, the fear of rejection, the fear of loss. Friends, the reason why we can embrace faithfulness to Jesus because he himself confronted the very worst of these things and he went all the way to the cross. He was rejected, he was despised, he was hated for your sake. He lost everything 
it would seem. Which tells me two things. It tells me, first of all, that I can't suffer more than my Savior has for me. And whatever I do in life is only ever going to come into the shadow of what He has done for me and the cross that, that stands over me. But it tells me this also more positively and hopefully as we finish. That if Christ in His suffering proved by His subsequent resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God that the Father is faithful and He comes good on His promises and He rewards His his son, he will also do the same for us. That you cannot suffer more than God's generosity is able to repay and refill. And that's why we're going to take communion as we close. This communion is a chance for us to recall the faithfulness of Jesus on our behalf that we might have sort of iron in our blood to embrace a life that's more faithful to him. His faithfulness to us took him to the cross and he is calling on us as his people to be more faithful to him to the point where we would be willing to suffer if necessary. Not that we run into that, not that we embrace it as um, an inevitability, but that we are willing for it. And so as we take communion now, I want you just to very practically ask Jesus to more and more impress upon your heart his worth so that you are willing to pay the price, to take up your cross daily, as he puts it, and follow him.